Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the New Testament, from Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. We are in chapter 5 and reading verse 1 and then skipping down to verse 13 and reading through verse 26. And so again, I invite you to turn in your scriptures and to follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And so I will say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under law. And the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. In our study on the doctrine of the church, we addressed last week the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, where we said that God took possession of his people in a new and powerful way, fulfilling the promise God made through the prophet Ezekiel that God would put his very own spirit in each one, turning their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Now that promise was not simply for the 120 disciples gathered in prayer in Jerusalem that day. But when Peter gave his invitation at the end of his sermon for people to come to Christ, he said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all 
who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And we know that on that day, 3,000 souls came to Christ. They were washed free of their sins, and they too were filled with the Holy Spirit. We then made the point that not only did the Spirit fill each individual disciple of Christ, but in so doing, the Spirit was filling the spiritual house that Christ was building, the church. One spiritual stone, one believer at a time, joining us to Christ and joining us to one another. And in filling this spiritual edifice with His own presence, the Holy Spirit engaged in a sanctifying, equipping work, blessing us as the church with ministry designed to accomplish the will of the Father and the Son. Well, this morning we want to continue our thinking about the implications of Pentecost and the Spirit's mission in us and the church. Quite often, I think, in discussions about the Holy Spirit, people are curious about the quote-unquote gifts of the Spirit that the Apostle Paul mentions in some of his letters. But before we ever think about the gifts of the Spirit, we need to realize that the giver is himself the gift. That is to say that when Jesus indicates to the disciples in John chapter 14 that it is to their advantage that he go away in order that he might send to them another helper, the advantage is that this helper, the Holy Spirit, will dwell within them. But then he says to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then not too many verses later, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The point of this is that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, can also be understood to be the Spirit of Christ as well as the Spirit of God. In fact, as we read the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit has a variety of names and titles. He is referred to as the Spirit of your Father. The Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of adoption, the Spirit of His Son, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit of grace, the eternal Spirit, the Spirit of glory. The point is that the Spirit of God is spoken of in such a way as to convey that when the Holy Spirit dwells in the believer, the very real presence of God the Father and God the Son are also to be understood as being present in the believer. Now friends, this requires some quiet contemplation and serious reflection. By spiritually dwelling within believers, God has done a most amazing and surprising thing. When you study what God required of Solomon and the priests in terms of the building of the temple, and then the preparation and maintenance of it before God's glory came to fill the Holy of Holies, 
you realize that God was conveying to his people that they should take his holiness very, very seriously. The temple was designed and built to protect the people from God. For our God is a consuming fire. Not just anyone could enter the Holy of Holies, the innermost sanctum of the temple where the glory of God dwelt. Only one person could do that, and that was the high priest. And he was allowed to do this only on one day per year. Before he ever parted the veil to step inside, there were elaborate and precise steps that he had to make in order that he himself would be cleansed and he would be made righteous. He could not just grab some hand sanitizer and slough his way in. He would have been instantly cremated. So when we consider that God has agreed to take up residence in the hearts of every believer, we want to ask, what's changed? What made that level of intimacy with God possible? And the answer, of course, is Jesus and His atoning work. As our high priest, Christ has made a sacrifice so perfect and so precious that its effect will stand for all eternity, never requiring repetition. Christ has brought about a spiritual cleansing that the Spirit of God has applied to us, making us a new creation. As Paul says, the old has passed away. Behold, all is new. Now consider the efficacy, the power of that sacrifice such that it would transform us according to the holiness of God, making our sinful hearts a suitable and desirable place for the Spirit of Almighty God to dwell. This is no small thing. Because God hates sin. So for God to find our hearts a suitable and desirable place in which to dwell suggests a spiritual cleansing that is far beyond our capacity to ever produce. And for God to send His Spirit to be with us like this is a gift to end all gifts. This is the resource to end all resources, the supply to end all supplies. In the Old Testament, when the promised land was being divvied up between the tribes, the tribe of Levi received no territory that they could call their own because God said that He was their inheritance. God established a covenant with the tribe of Levi that the tithes that the people presented to God, God would give to the Levites in exchange for their service unto God. He was all that they would need. He was their provision. Well, if we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, we need no other gift. So what are the implications of this gift to end all gifts? Paul speaks of the Spirit as being our guarantee. That is, the mere presence of the Spirit serves as a constant reminder to us that there is more to come and that it will surely come. Paul says to the Ephesians, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, God fills us with his spirit to assure us that his promises to us are not empty words, but can confidently be relied upon. The word that Paul uses is erobon, which is a commercial term that signifies a pledge. It is earnest money that serves as a guarantee that what a person has said, they will do. Many of you I know own homes, and you will remember that when it was time to purchase your home, that it was required that you present monetary funds to the seller, earnest money, along with your contract that detailed your offer with the understanding that should the seller accept your terms and you later reneged on your offer, you would lose your earnest money. Well, Paul is saying that by giving to us his very own spirit, God is assuring us, is guaranteeing us, that every other promise he has made can be taken to the bank. He will not renege on what he has said because he has given us himself. Paul makes a similar point at the end of Romans 8 when he asks the rhetorical question, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if the Father did not withhold from us, For our sakes, the very life of his only begotten son, can you think of something more precious to God that he might consider withholding from us? Of course not. And so the presence of the Holy Spirit is God's earnest money to the elect that all he has promised to do, he will do. Now when would such an assurance be most helpful? When would the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, this helper that Jesus sent, be most beneficial? Perhaps during times of dire circumstance or during times of spiritual darkness or during times of intense persecution or during times of great doubt. Perhaps during those times when our longevity has been called into question or we have lost our job or lost a child or found ourselves in a tumultuous sea of unknown origin and we cannot seem to gain our bearings. This helper that Jesus so graciously sends to us and to the church is present to sustain us during times of suffering. The Apostle Peter speaks of this when addressing the saints that were scattered across Asia Minor. And he wrote to them, To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. 
And then a little later he says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We have said before that Jesus warned His disciples that persecution and trouble would come to them because they were His disciples. Because the world hated Jesus, they should expect that the world will also hate them. Knowing that this kind of suffering would come, God has blessed us with His indwelling presence to sustain us through that suffering, enabling us to suffer as Christ suffered which was uncharacteristic when compared to the world, which does not suffer well, the least little thing. Remember, if you will, the Apostle Paul, in speaking of the trials and tribulations that are associated with being a disciple of Christ, and the rationale behind God's wisdom in allowing these things to occur. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. God's indwelling presence is made visible to the world to the degree that they are struck by the way in which the church, the disciples of Christ, go through suffering. It isn't that we put on a fake smile and grin and bear it. Any stoic can do that for a while. But rather it is that as the redeemed of the Lord, we have come to know the very real presence and power which has been graciously poured into us by the Holy Spirit, this helper that Christ has sent, and surrendering ourselves to Him, we are enabled to walk in uncharacteristic and uncommon ways that display to the world this treasure that God has stored in these clay pots. Now, there are those who are critical of the church, insisting that there is very little difference that distinguishes those who are in the church from those who are outside of the church. And they will point to certain ones who are guilty of very public moral failures, and they will go, see, see? Yet those same critics never speak up in praise of the church when Christians arrive in mass and are first on the scene of a devastating earthquake or a catastrophic hurricane. Their lips are sealed when hunger drives and blood drives and homeless shelters and community clothing closets and so much more are spearheaded by the church. And the history of the church in founding hospitals and orphanages and colleges and universities and refugee settlement camps and so much more, 
All of that is due to the church taking the commands of Christ seriously, and yet the world does not usually praise the church for those ministries because to do so would be to admit that there may be something to this discipleship that they ought to consider. Those ministries are due to the power and the influence of the Spirit of God dwelling in the hearts and minds of every believer And because we are joined to Christ and joined to one another, the Spirit stirs us up to engage the world this way. This is the result of the Spirit's sanctifying work in God's people. As we read a moment ago, Paul writes to the Galatians and laid out not the gifts of the Spirit, but what he refers to as the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, Paul points to the characteristic changes that the Spirit of God develops and fosters in the lives of the disciples of Christ. To use the metaphor that Jesus presented in John 15 of the vine and the branches, it is this organic connection with Christ that produces fruit that is pleasing to God's eye and characteristic of a life that has been transformed by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Paul lists a host of characteristics that are identifiable with the unredeemed life of those who walk by the flesh. It is a long, though not inexhaustible, list of behaviors that people all around us engage in on a regular basis. And that list included behaviors and characteristics that the Galatians themselves once knew before they came to Christ. Paul's word to them includes the warning that continually living like that is disqualifying in terms of being included in the church. Not because we're saved by good works, but because that would give indication that that individual had not yet been redeemed and become a recipient of God's indwelling presence. For if the Spirit of God has taken up residence in us, then our character will begin to be transformed. Not overnight, but steadily transformed, day by day, being transformed, as Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. And the changes that the Spirit brings about in those who are being built into this spiritual household of God are things like love and joy and peace and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. This is the Spirit of God sanctifying us in a way that gives us the increasing appearance of the very Son of God. What does Paul say in Romans 8? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. When the Spirit of God develops an uncommon love within the heart of believers, they will engage with the world in a new and profound way. When the Spirit of God develops an uncommon peace within the heart of believers, a peace that passes all understanding, it will grab the attention of friends and neighbors who will inquire about the change in us. 
or when the Spirit of God develops an uncommon goodness within us or an uncommon patience or an uncommon degree of self-control, it will grab the attention of a spouse or a family member or a co-worker that will lead to conversations about spiritual matters. Equipping the church for ministry isn't so much about giving certain gifts to certain members that they may utilize that for ministry as it is about transforming the character of those who are following Christ. As Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And all of that is to say that the gifts of the Spirit that many are enamored with is worth very little in the plans of God if those who exercise those gifts have not surrendered themselves to the sanctifying work of the Spirit who desires to produce spiritual fruit in us that mirrors the character of the very Son of God. Whether or not we can preach and teach or sing like an angel will matter little to the Lord or to the world if in doing so they cannot see Jesus shining through. Beloved God has gifted us with His very own Spirit. Not so we will gain the glory, but so that He will gain the glory. For He alone is worthy to receive it. Let us continue to marvel over the great grace that God has shown towards us by giving to us His very own self. Let me invite you to bow your heads and pray with me for a moment.